We've been uh, walking through a series that we've titled Jesus, the Savior of the World. And in this series, we've beheld all the events that surround Jesus being lifted up on a cross to pay for the sins of mankind. And so we've seen his trial. God himself being tried before sinful men. We've seen him convicted and beaten, uh, crucified, nailed to a cross. We've seen him die. Last week, that's where we ended. We uh, looked at, at a scene that we titled, It is Finished. Because what took place at the cross completed the payment that needed to be paid for our sins. And we've reminded ourselves all the way through this series that Jesus endured all that we've talked about to pay for, for your sins. Personalize that. To pay for, for my sins. Well, one of the observations that we've made as we've walked through these stories is that John tells these stories in a very unique way. And there's several reasons for John telling these stories the way that he does. One of the reasons that we haven't talked about in a long time is that John is writing this gospel years after, even decades after any other gospel has already been written. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke have already been written. Those gospels have circulated it. And when John writes his gospel that we've been studying, he writes it from a little bit of a different perspective. He writes it primarily from a theological rather than a historical perspective. And because of that agenda, he tells stories in in different ways than the earlier gospel writers did. We know the story. We know the story of... um, of, we know the, the theme of why this gospel was written. We've talked about it a lot in John 20, 21. These things were written that you would know, that you would believe. That you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And that in believing, you would have eternal life in His name. What's well, funny, if I, were to, if I were to write a story that was about the crucifixion of Jesus and I was writing it, with the agenda that, that you would believe. There's certain things that I might have left out that John puts in. And there's certain things that I would have put in that John certainly puts out. An example of that that, that just hit me as I, was, as I was studying this this week is, man, remember the scene with the, with the Roman soldier, the centurion, who after Jesus dies, he comes to the cross, he looks at Jesus. Remember what he says? Surely this is the Son of God. Wouldn't that have been a great scene to put in this gospel? Like if the goal is that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, wouldn't it have been been seemingly smart for someone to include the story of, of an unbeliever who sees Jesus crucified and his conclusion is he's the Son of God? But John doesn't tell that story. And it's fascinating to me why he doesn't. He knows the story. He knows the other gospels. He was there. He saw what happened. And yet John leaves that story out. In fact, in its place, we see a very, very unique story tonight that includes details that probably if any of us were writing this gospel, we never would have thought to put in there. But remember that John is writing as the Holy Spirit is speaking through him. And there's something very, very important that's being revealed in this text. And while it may not be revealed in the way that we would naturally 
probably maybe even desire to reveal it, John is driving home a message that's very, very important to his agenda. We're going to read this text tonight, and it's going to center around the burial of Jesus. We're going to title this tonight, The Burial of the King. The Burial of the King. And we're going to be in verses 38 through 42, a short text tonight in John chapter 19. But I want us to approach this and ask why. Why is John giving us this information? Verse 38. After these things, that is after the death of Jesus and after he has been pierced with a spear. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices as the burial custom of the Jews. Now the place where he was crucified, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. It's an interesting story. John, of of all things that he could choose to write about immediately following the death of Jesus, is about two men, um, one of whom appears in no other gospel. Two men that show up and ask for Jesus' body, and they take him away, they prepare his body to be buried, and they lay him in the grave. They lay him in the tomb. But as we read through this story, what actually stands out as a very significant portion of John's agenda is not just the events in the story, but the characters that he chooses to focus on. John chooses to zoom in on two individuals as he's telling this story, a man named Joseph of Arimathea and a man named Nicodemus, who we saw earlier in the Gospel of John. After all of the gravity of what has taken place, he doesn't look at the disciples. He, he, he ceases to talk about the, the significance even of what took place at the cross. There's no reflection on that. John immediately transitions to two men who want to have the body of Jesus so that they can bury it. And the question is, why? Well, to understand that, the first thing that we need to look into is who exactly these two men are. Remember, Jesus is dead. Like, Jesus is not a character in this scene. Jesus is somewhere else. His body is hanging on a cross, but his soul is in heaven. He's he's with God. So Jesus, no longer in the scene, just these two men. And John writes about first, Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea, in verse 38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. So this man named Joseph is a follower of Jesus. He's a disciple of Jesus. But John gives us an interesting piece of information because he calls him a secret one. He's a follower of Jesus that didn't want others to know that he was a follower of Jesus. 
Now, based on what we're told here and a couple other pieces of information from other Gospels, we know a certain number of things about, about Joseph of Arimathea. First of all, he was a, a significant religious leader. Uh, we're told in, in, I think, Mark, that he's an he's a important men, member of the council. That would have been the council of the Sanhedrin. They were religious leaders. Joseph of Arimathea is in a significant religious leader. He plays an important role. He's a Jew. So he's a Jewish religious leader, and, and he holds a prominent role among the council of the Sanhedrin. He, he is a disciple of Jesus, so he's interested in what Jesus has to say. He's, he's at least from a distance following Jesus. But we're told in verse 38 a really important piece of information about Joseph, and that is that he is afraid of the Jews. Now, Joseph is a Jew. So the question arises, why would Joseph be afraid of the Jews? Well, the reason for that is because Joseph is interested in what Jesus has taught. Joseph then is concerned with how the other Jews, the other religious leaders, will perceive him if they recognize that he's actually a follower of Jesus. So Joseph of Arimathea, a religious leader, a Jew, a disciple of Jesus, and one who is afraid that others would know that he is a disciple of Jesus. We're also told, and it's implied in this passage, that Joseph was a, a rich man. He had a, a, a significant amount of money. We see even some of the images of that in, in this scene as, as this man has a tomb, a, a, a rather uh, wealthy form of burying someone was for them to be buried in the tomb. And we know that this tomb was Joseph's tomb. It was his own tomb that it had never been used before. It was a new tomb. And, and we're told in other gospels that Joseph had a, a substantial amount of money. So, so he's a religious leader. He's a rich man. He's a Jew. He's a follower of Jesus. But perhaps most significantly, he's afraid that others would know that he is a follower of Jesus. That's the individual, one of the two, that John focuses in on. The second one is a man named Nicodemus. If you were paying attention and remember like a year and a half ago, Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus was also a religious leader. He came to Jesus, but a significant observation about him coming to Jesus was when he came to Jesus. Do you guys remember when that was? He came to Jesus at night. And the reason for that is because Nicodemus had the exact same emotions as Joseph does in this scene. Nicodemus was hesitant for people to see him coming to Jesus. And so in John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes and he has questions and his questions are significant. How can a man be born again? How does one have eternal life? He has questions about eternity and he wants Jesus to answer them. And Jesus gives him the gospel message. But Nicodemus doesn't want anyone to know that he was interested in what Jesus has to say. So we have immediately an interesting common bond between these men. Both Joseph and Nicodemus are religious leaders. They hold significant roles. They're both Jews. And they're both ashamed that others would know that they are following Jesus or interested in what Jesus has to say. We also know, based on this passage and some other texts, that Nicodemus was also a rich man. Uh, Nicodemus had, had a, a fairly significant amount of money. Uh, he had to have, to have even been able to afford what is seen in this text. Nicodemus is going to go out and purchase a massive amount of, of spices and, and, and burial materials for Jesus. They're going to give him the, the burial fit for a king. And there were resources that were necessary for that to happen. So we see several common bonds between this men, these men, Jews, religious leaders, 
rich, ashamed that others would know that they are followers of Jesus. With that in mind then, with those awarenesses that these are men of secrecy, that these are men even of shame of their allegiance to Jesus, and that these are men of financial capability, we ask the question, why does John focus on these two? Why would he do that? Why in in the most significant event in all of history does he focus on Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus? John tells us this story because in it we are going to see the effect of the cross on hesitant followers of Jesus. So if you're taking notes and looking for an outline, how we're going to structure this tonight is two signs of faith in hesitant followers of Jesus. Two signs of faith in hesitant followers of Jesus. That is a description of these two men. They are both, by name, followers of Jesus, but they're both really hesitant about it. They both don't want other people to know. They're both concerned about the views and other people's opinion of them. They're followers of Jesus that are only followers in secret. They're not public. And if I can just bring us up to speed on the state of someone in that position, that's not a healthy spiritual state. As John is reflecting on these men and their souls, his reflection is not positive. Like, he's not saying that that Joseph is a noble man for, for being faithful to Jesus in secret because he's scared of the Jews. This is a negative take on Joseph's position. He wants to follow Jesus, but but he's not willing to give up his own personal desires of remaining in the circle that he's in. Nicodemus wants wants to get Jesus answers to questions, but he doesn't want anyone else to know that he's asking these questions. And so there's this there's this pride. There's this selfishness. There's a significance that they want to retain while wanting to follow Jesus. But when Jesus dies on the cross, when it is finished, we begin to see those emotions shatter. Those who were hesitant become bold. Because what happens at the cross, as these men see it, changes their evaluation of themselves, it changes how they view the significance of their relationships, it changes how they view Jesus. And all of a sudden, in these two men's lives, there are signs of faith. As what they have claimed in secret turns into action in public. I want us to take note of this. Look, John's not just writing haphazardly. He's not just writing whatever comes to mind. He's writing with a purpose. Because he wants his readers to see what happens when someone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God. This is John's version of the soldier that comes to the cross and says, truly, this is the Son of God. This is Nicodemus and Joseph who's, who have been hiding in the corners, coming, coming publicly and identifying with Christ. It's a massive, massive event. And so, the first 
sign of faith that's shown in these men. And I would suggest that that a sign of faith in all those who follow Christ are boldness in identifying with Christ. That's our first point tonight. Boldness in identifying with Christ. So we've already established this. Both of these men were hesitant to openly identify with Christ. Now, as Jesus was teaching in his ministry, he was very clear on the priority that Jesus was to have in the lives of his followers. He was very clear about this. He taught over and over how important it was that his followers were willing to abandon their past. There were men that came to Jesus and said, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, you can't. You can't do it. You can't follow me because you're not willing to abandon your past. Jesus taught in his ministry that if someone wanted to follow him, that they must be willing to put their past on the line. So, when we see at the cross two men who formerly were not willing to put their past on the line, all of a sudden have boldness in their claim of allegiance to Jesus, it's significant. See, what these two men were, were exactly what Jesus taught against. These two men were those who said, I want to follow Jesus, I want to be his disciple. They're even called disciples of Jesus, but they weren't willing to tell anyone. What Jesus said is that when I enter into someone's life, it will drive a wedge. So much that he even said, there's times when families will be split apart because of me. There are times when, when, when father and son are split apart because of one of their allegiance to me. So when these men are not willing to to publicly identify with Jesus, it's a significant red flag. But at the cross, that state of their souls is exposed and challenged. When Jesus dies on the cross and these men behold that, all of a sudden something changes in them. And that is that there is boldness in identifying with Christ. Now, it doesn't mean that the fear disappeared. You see, Joseph was still afraid. Joseph, after Jesus has died, is is evaluating the situation and he wants to care for Jesus. He wants to give him a burial as a king should be buried. But he knows that in doing so, he's publicly identifying with Jesus. And so he's scared. He's hesitant. But he goes anyways. He goes to Pilate. See, that's important. The fear for Joseph Joseph didn't disappear. But rather, as, as he begins to boldly identify with Christ, he goes to Pilate and he asks him for Jesus' body. Pilate grants it. Now, now this is, again, is a significant event. This was not typically what was done with the body of those who had been crucified. Typically, there were two things that happened. They were either left on the cross to, to be devoured by vultures or they were, they were thrown into kind of like a community graveyard, like a very, very public setting where they would throw everyone that was crucified. Those were what was typically done with those who were crucified. So what's taking place here is not normal. But Pilate allows it. Pilate allows Joseph to have the body of Jesus. Nicodemus in the very same way. It's it's fascinating that John introduces Nicodemus not as the man who came to Jesus asking how to attain eternal life, 
he refers to Nicodemus as the one who came at night. When John thinks Nicodemus, he thinks the one who came at night. The one who came in darkness. The one who didn't want anyone else to know he was coming. And so he says, Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, he also came. He also came. The one who once would only identify with Jesus by night was now a part of Jesus' burial in a bold statement of his own love and allegiance to Jesus. Why does John tell this story? Because the cross brought this about in these men's lives. Jesus dies on the cross. He says, it is finished. And these men respond, who were once timid and hesitant, with boldness and allegiance in identifying with Jesus. The cross motivates boldness in these men. They're publicly associating with Jesus. They're boldly identifying with Jesus. And I would call you tonight to be aware that anyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus, anyone who is truly a disciple of Jesus, is not a follower in secret. My concern is that many of us may conduct our lives the way Joseph and Nicodemus conducted their lives before they beheld the cross. That it's easy to say in an environment where it's welcome that I publicly identify with Jesus. That it's easy in school or, or wherever is a less friendly environment to just not make it publicly known that you associate and identify and follow in our disciple of Jesus. But John is exposing that lifestyle in this story. He looks at Joseph and Nicodemus and he says to those who beheld the cross, boldness came in their allegiance to Jesus. They were boldly identifying. And so I want to call us to be aware that this is a sign of faith. That to followers of Jesus, there is boldness about Jesus. There is an awareness that others should have about who you are about the most important thing about you, which is how you stand before God, your allegiance to Jesus. And so if you're truly his disciple, if you're truly his follower, I believe that the response is exactly how Joseph and Nicodemus respond here, to boldly identify. A good evaluation for you to, to ask the question, do others know what I believe about Jesus? Now, hopefully the body of Christ does. Hopefully the church does. But what about those who don't know Jesus? Is there awareness of what you believe? With Joseph, there wasn't. His friends didn't know what he believed. He kept it in secret. With Nicodemus, there wasn't. Like, it's so strategic by John. He, he tells us the story in John chapter 3 of what happened when Nicodemus came to him, but we're never told how Nicodemus responds to the gospel. We're left hanging. Nicodemus never shows up again until this scene. And it's so strategic by John that this man who is asking about salvation believes the scene without a response. At this point, responds. Now, when exactly Nicodemus came to faith, we don't know, but this is the first response we see. Boldly identifying with Jesus Christ when he was once timid and afraid. So that is the first sign of faith in a hesitant follower of Jesus. But a second one is given to us in this story. And I want to be careful that, that we understand this is not the only signs of faith in hesitant followers of Jesus. But they're what's shown in this story. And so the second one is sacrificial giving and caring for Christ. 
sacrificial giving in caring for Christ. I want us to observe not only that these men boldly identify with Christ after the cross, but that they are both sacrificially giving to Christ or for Christ after the cross. That when they behold the cross, a sign of faith in their life is that they start sacrificing significantly on Jesus' behalf. How exactly are these men sacrificing on Jesus' behalf? Well, we already talked about the typical way that, that, that men or women who were crucified, how they were buried. They were left on the cross or they were thrown into a public graveyard. What Joseph does in this scene is completely unorthodox. This is not the typical burial process. Because Joseph wants Jesus to have a burial that is better than, than just any other man. They want Jesus to be treated like a king. And that's how Jesus has been lifted up through this whole narrative. He's the king. He's the king of the Jews. He's the king of the world. These men want him to have a burial fit for a king. And so Joseph, first and foremost, sacrifices significantly. We're told that this is Joseph's own tomb. That Joseph places Jesus in his family's tomb. It was a new tomb. It had been hewn out of a rock. This was an expensive, a tedious process for someone to attain to a tomb. This, 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 wasn't, this was not a poor man's burial. Joseph is giving Jesus the best. He gives him his, his own tomb that had never been used before. Typically, a tomb was, was like used by a whole family. It was almost passed down and more people were added into the tomb over time. This was a, a never used tomb. It was, it was a, a significant expense. But Joseph gives it to Christ. Why? Why is the man who was once hesitant to identify now sacrificially giving because of the cross, because of what he had just beheld? He sacrifices significantly in caring for Jesus. The cross motivates sacrificial commitment. cross motivates sacrificial commitment. Nicodemus responds in a similar way. Joseph handles the the location of the burial. Nicodemus handles the the resources, the materials for the burial. Nicodemus goes out and he purchases everything that's needed to bury Jesus properly according to their custom. But he goes above and beyond. We're told that Nicodemus, in in verse 39, Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. Uh, That's a a loose translation. They're they're what they would have called a pound is about three quarters of a pound in our terminology. So probably about equivalent to seven. 75 pounds in weight. But I want you to think about that. These are spices, a mixed together a group, of, a group of, of spices that were meant to slow down the scent of the decaying process. 75 pounds of spices. Is, this is over and above. Nicodemus goes and buys more than would ever be necessary for what's required for this task. 
An average man would not have been buried with, with this amount of what we would even call luxury. These men are sacrificing significantly. And so they wrap Jesus' body. They wrap it in cloth. And, 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 and they, they bury him probably on top and, and surround him in spices that, that are literally meant to create a, a pleasing aroma to, to, to minimize the smell that came from a dead individual. This is a dead body. So Nicodemus sacrifices significantly. This would have been incredibly expensive for Nicodemus to purchase this. But he does. He sacrifices to care for Jesus, to care for his Lord. The cross motivates sacrificial commitment. How are you... How are you like these men sacrificing to bring glory to God? How how are you sacrificing to bring glory like these men are to Jesus Christ? You may not have the means to, to go and purchase this amount. You may not have the means to go and purchase anything. But you have far more ability to sacrifice than just the money in your bank account. You you have your time. You have your energy. Whatever resources you have available to you to serve and and to help others and care for others and bear burdens and and whatever. Fill in the blank. How are you sacrificing to show commitment to Christ? How are you sacrificing to bring glory to Christ? When these men beheld the cross, sacrificial commitment was a natural reaction. And I would suggest that the same is true today. And so there's, there's two signs of faith in hesitant followers of Jesus. So let's close with this question. What effect has Jesus' work on the cross had on your life? And that's a very open-ended question because I want this to apply to everyone in this room. Answer that question. What effect has the cross had on me? First and foremost, my prayer is that it has a saving effect you've repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ. But it goes far beyond that. The effect of the cross leads to things like boldly identifying with Christ, sacrificially giving, and a love for Christ. And so evaluate your life from that. Imagine this scene. These men have followed Jesus and then Jesus dies. It would seem like the passion would die. We'd go home, oh well, we had a good run. But that's not what happens. When they behold the cross, boldness and and sacrifice starts effusing from their lives in allegiance and love for their Savior and Lord. I hope that the same is true for you. Because that's true of anyone who has trusted in Jesus as the Son of God.